All right, welcome back, everybody, to episode 11 of the third season of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Today, we're talking all about hydrodissection injections and what does it mean, when we would use it, and you know why we'd want to do it, what we use it for. So let's get it started. First, hydrodissection, it's a fancy word, right? So hydro is water, dissection is kind of splitting something apart. So the formal definition here is you know, the introduction of an injected liquid under pressure to either create tissue planes or separate a nerve or tissue layer from some other surrounding structure. So once again, let's break that down into real real words what that actually means. So we are injecting something, usually some sort of liquid under pressure, meaning, hey, it's coming from the needle. Like there's nothing else. We're not just throwing water in there. We're using the needle, so that creates pressure. And we use that pressure to try to separate something, whether that is different tissue planes. So tissue kind of has multiple different planes that go on. You know, if you look at your skin, you got multiple layers in terms of epidermis, dermis going on there. You know, we go deeper than that. We're usually around nerves and joints and tendons and whatnot, but we're kind of using that liquid to help separate these layers or to separate either a nerve or tissue for some other surrounding structure. So another common example is injecting around a nerve, right? That's what we talk about. Like I said, in other words, we are injecting some liquid to help separate something from something else, most commonly at a nerve at some sort of area of potential entrapment. Like I said, the vast majority of times that I'm using these is some sort of nerve entrapment. And but you can also do it for things like fat pad, you know, behind the patellar or Achilles tendon. There's a fat pad there. You can use that to separate that. Really, you can separate it for whatever reason you want. And there's no limit on what it is. That's the general consensus of what it is. Obviously, there are certain use cases that people use it more commonly for X or Y, but can really do for anything. So when we talk about this, like I said, nerve is our main use case. So I kind of want to talk a little bit more about nerves about that and talk about nerve pain, right? So when people have neuropathic pain, that's when this, I start thinking, hmm, where could I inject using this, this hydro, hydro dissection and kind of at the end of the day can be, the pain can be anywhere and can be kind of anything can present any different way. There's no one way. This is nerve pain, but there are kind of more common ones. A lot of times people describe it as a deep seated pain. It's like poorly localized. I mean, there's like, I like this hurts. They'll kind of like generally point in an area and it's like not necessarily one focal spot. A lot of times that can be one thing. It can also have a degree of pain that's not proportional to the degree of tissue or nerve damage. And like I said, this kind of falls into the whole biomedical versus biopsychosocial pain model. And that's a whole now they're literally probably lecture series and podcast series, but you know, you could see like something that, Hey, like everything looks fine. We don't think, but they're suffering lots and lots of pain. Then I think, well, Hey, is this a nerve issue? Cause sometimes when nerves are irritated, it just cranks that amp up to 11 in terms of like, you're having, you're very sensitive to pain and you're just like, man, this doesn't make sense. That's something I think, what well, could this be a nerve type pain? A lot of times it's described as a soreness, maybe numbness, tingling or electric shocks. That's a common one. People are just like, ah, oh, it feels like, you know, um, just tingly. And that's the general like neuropathic type pain, which is pretty classic that where they get, might get shocks or, Ooh, they get like something buzzing and go in there. Um, on top of that, let's talk a little about the physiology of nerve entrapment, right? So a nerve is susceptible to a pressure induced injury when it's entrapped and entrapped is kind of like a catch all term, right? So it sounds like super dramatic, like, Oh, we entrapped it. All that means I, we think, and like I said, this is even up for debate in terms of, you know, if a nerve is running through an area, the, the, the tissue around there is just kind of a little tighter than it should be. That's kind of what I think of when in terms of entrapped or maybe in, you know, nerves, if you can put them on tension, they can move typically, and maybe they're kind of more adhered and they can't move quite as well. That's another way I, you can kind of think about it being entrapped. But like I said, the idea is that when we have external pressure on a nerve more so than it likes, that can lead to pressure related injury that can happen essentially can be 
external instruments. Like if you leave a blood pressure cuff on for a really long time, or like you have a tourniquet on during surgery, that can lead to issues or it can be internal, meaning somehow entrapped, you know, going through a bony tunnel, there's a bone spur that is leading to rubbing on it. Maybe a muscle is, you know, hypertonic, or we have really a lot of excess fascia and we're leaning on it. So long story short, something is kind of pressing on it. Something is kind of creating extra friction potentially on it. And that can be external or internal. Typically, if it's external, we just remove it. If it's internal, that's what we're talking about with these injections here. When things and when nerves get compressed though, this leads to segmental intraneural ischemia, which disrupts the blood nerve barrier. And it may release pain producing and degenerative peptides like substance P and calcitonin gene related peptides. So like those are fancy words, but when we have this compression, can lead to essentially many areas of not getting enough blood. So leading to, you know, kind of micro ischemia and it can disrupt the nerve, the nerve blood barrier and they can release to like releasing these things that may cause pain. And then prolonged compression, if it continues to prolong and have compressed for a long, long time can lead to demyelination of the nerves and axonal loss, which is our, I said, axon is a component of the nerve and the myelin is kind of what lines the nerves to help propagate our nerve signals. And so we have a disruption in terms of either sensing or sending out messages of the nerves and propagating down the nerve. And then we have issues with the myelin and that can lead to potential pain as well. And so when do these nerves get compressed, right? So there's lots of reasons, right? You could have you could have this in the setting of a nerve elongation, meaning a force elongation, like a sprain or a strain of something. If you think of your ankle and you invert it and you put it on stretch, that can potentially do it. Also, potentially, if you have forced nerve movement through areas of fascial constrictions, or just kind of for whatever reason, maybe we had post-surgery, a lot of scar tissue there, that's a possibility. You know, if you're forced around bony prominences, like I said, if you have, you're not supposed to, but you're trying to pushing things through there and it kind of rubs on the bone. If you have like we said, osteophytic lesions, which are essentially bone spurs that may happen to it. If you alter the course of the nerve, you have trauma like surgery, all these things can lead to a potential compression of the nerve. Like I said, it's not necessarily definitively clear why, but it can happen as well. And so when we do this, how does it work? That's the idea. Once again, like most injections, we say, ah, we think it works like this. We're not exactly sure how things work, but this is what we generally think about. You know, kind of what we think about is this injection provides a mechanical effect to release and decompress an entrapped nerve, but also a pharmacological effect on relieving pain, depending on what we inject. So when we inject there, when we talk about mechanical effect, we're saying, hey, theoretically, when we inject fluid around there, are we separating that nerve from what's being entrapped? That's the mechanical separation. And then we talk about pharmacologic, depending on what we're injecting, we'll talk about that. You know, the substance we inject may also act on those nerves and have some sort of effect. So we may release the pressure on these nerves by supplying the main nerves, you know, or have the blood supply backed up due to compression, right? So maybe we're having compression of the blood supply and then have a buildup of potential toxins there because we had that little micro ischemia. And if we free it from that area, we might be able to clear out that area. And that's why we might have improvement. We'll see. But also when we're looking at nerves, how do we know when nerves are pathologic, right? So First of all, obviously pain, pain in that area is going there. If you just see a nerve and there's no pain involved with it or no problem in that area, I'm not going to go in there, stick a needle and try to inject around that. We'll typically have some sort of issue with it. But if you're looking on ultrasound, you typically see a swollen, swollen nerve. You'll have a bigger cross-sectional area. So a lot of times you're like, what, what does big mean? Well, like it's different. There's some standards for some different nerves, but generally what we do is compare one side to the other. And if you look at one side, it's big and angry. And you know, when we look at cross-sectional area, you push pause and ultrasound, you kind of measure all the way around it say, how big is it? And that can, that can lead you to say, Hey, this is a little, this is big. And we have symptoms over here. Okay. Maybe this is an issue. 
Another thing we look at is something called sonopalpation over the nerve. So essentially you put your probe over the, the nerve that you can see and you either push with your finger in front of it or push down with the probe, say, hey, like, is this reproducing your pain? And if someone's like, yeah, that's it, then you say, okay, then maybe this is a pathologic issue right here leading to that. On top of that, inside of a nerve, a nerve is kind of a bundle of bundles. So it's like one big circle and inside of there are these mini fascicles. You might see a single fascicle that's huge inside there. That can happen. And then also you can do ultrasound. You may show some snapping or sudden motion of a nerve over a bony prominence. So it's kind of in your area of irritation. That can happen as well. So there's multiple different ways on ultrasound where you can kind of take a look and say, hey, this may be a reason for why we're having symptoms. Once again, it's never as easy as just, hey, that's what it is because that's what I saw. I kind of have to put it all in the clinical picture of does this imaging confirm the symptoms that we're already presenting with as a patient? And so let's talk about the procedure itself. So the procedure itself is always ultrasound guided. You know, I would not recommend someone try to hydrodissect a nerve if they can't see a nerve. They're just doing landmark based. So we don't want that always using ultrasound guided. You know, we're technically doing our, our normal sterile prep here like we do for any sort of injection. And we can do these in plane or out of plane. It's essentially up to your doctor's preference and how they do it. You know, when I mean in plane versus out of plane, just technically speaking, um, I'll try to explain this in words for our audio listeners. If you are pretending that a nerve is going in a straight line, right? And in plane means your probe is lined up with that straight line. It is, it is completely parallel with it. And then your needle is going to go in the same direction too. So on the ultrasound, you'll see the needle the entire way and we're all going in one, in one direction. Um, when you say an out of plane injection, a lot of times what it is, if you imagine that straight line of the nerve and then you had the probe that's in line with it and just turn that 90 degrees so now it's perpendicular to it, that's out of plane. And then you would inject where it's going, injecting into the middle of that probe right there. So the middle of the probe right underneath there and all you'd see is a dot on your screen, the white dot. And that sometimes is the best you can do for the best approach. But like I said, typically it will depend on the location where you inject at and whatnot. So that's up to the doctor. It's kind of above, you know, everyone's pay grade until it's actually their job to do it, but can be either of those, both of them can, can do it. And then when we're doing that though, typically what we do is we inject these tissues above and below the nerve. So we'll find the nerve, we'll go in there, we'll inject above it, spray it. You'll start to see the separation around the nerve. It's really cool. And then once you're done there, you come around and try to go underneath it and do the same thing. And then trying as best you can to get a circumferential release. Obviously it's hard to get all the way on the other side sometimes just because the needle bend and whatnot, but you can try to get all the way around it, inject on top that'll cover hopefully 180 degrees of it, and then go underneath, get the rest of it to completely release the nerve. It's such a cool and uh, just rewarding feeling when you get a complete release, when it's just like, boom. Sometimes depending on where it's positioned and what it's up against, you try your best and you can get you know a percentage of it off. You can't get the 100%, but it's really, really cool to when you inject it and you can see fluid completely surrounding the nerve. That feels um, pretty, pretty awesome there when we do that. From a injection standpoint in terms of just some kind of some tips and tricks you know if you think you go inferior first with the bevel up what will happen is that injectate gets pushed up and it pushes the bevel down is to avoid the nerve and the opposite is true so when you go superior then bevel down so when you release it it gets pushed down and it comes on up and it kind of keeps the nerve away from that so we should hopefully see a halo around that nerve and then inject it all around. That's like the ultimate goal is to do that. And it's kind of get this all around kind of halo circumferential separation of the nerve. That's like what we're going for. And in terms of what do we go in there? We talked about, obviously we have the mechanical release of it. So we have the dilation where we just kind of boom, we get in there, we dissect away everything and we have the fluid around it. That's one reason Then we also have the pharmacologic convention. So what can we put in that needle that actually makes a difference? So first is being steroid, obviously steroids and everything. That's always the right answer in terms of Oh, can we do a steroid injection? Well, yeah, you can do a steroid injection for pretty much anything. It's obviously a strong anti-inflammatory agent. This will reduce cytokines, leukotrienes, prostaglandins. It reduces edema, essentially by reducing capillary permeability as well. You know, these ones are going to be triamcinolone, 
dexamethasone, betamethasone, methylprednisolone, all those things. Those can be injected to kind of help calm things down. And there's definitely a role for that, um, but that's very common. Other things we can use are local anesthetics like lidocaine, ropivacaine. Commonly, these are mixed with something. The idea that how these works is these inhibit pain by reversely blocking the voltage-gated sodium channels within the axon, and especially the axons of the nociceptors. So we're kind of... Um, you know, inhibiting these sodium channels. And that's how we get that like numbness, right? From this. So commonly when we do these, we'll produce like someone be, Ooh, I feel numbness and tingling. And that can last a couple hours, depending on how long your anesthetic lasts, but that will go away after the injection as well. For, in terms of anesthetics, to choose lidocaine as a faster onset than like say bupivacaine and the duration of lidos is about one to two hours and bupivacaine is a much longer onset and duration. So just something to consider as well. Um, we've talked about those kind of be chondrotoxicity wise, but we'll think about that. And then next we're going to talk about dextrose. So dextrose, we've talked about with prolotherapy. We can use it here as well, which is crazy, but typically we use a different dose than prolotherapy. Prolotherapy, if you go back and remember anything above about 12.5% is considered in a pro-inflammatory pro injection. Here we're using a much lower concentration than that, typically about 5% dextrose. So this is essentially a much, much more dilute um, dextrose here. But like I said, the mechanism is not clear, but what happened is the dextrose actually might downregulate some pain receptors or the C-fiber activ activation. So like it has similar analgesic effects and that's like kind of crazy. We have the sugar water injection and we go in there and actually may have downregulating of the nerve sensitivity, which is pretty darn cool. You can also do hydrosection with PRP. Like we talked about in PRP a couple episodes, this is concentrated platelets from autologous blood. These platelets then release granules, which release gross factors and triggers an inflammatory response. That can happen. We can also inject something called hyaluronidase. It's an enzyme derived from mammalian tissues, which you know has a lower viscosity than hyaluron, which is a part of the extracellular matrix. And essentially what we do is this increases tissue permeability, may have effect on nerve conduction and whatnot there. And typically used as breaking up adhesions kind of one. It's not as common, but it can be used in orthopedic settings in certain situations. And we also have normal saline, right? So an isotonic solution can be used on its own or combined with other things. Essentially, it acts as a perineural space expander, but um, no intrinsic anti-inflammatory properties to it. But like I said, normal saline, inject in water. That's, I mean, not just necessarily normal water. Don't inject tap water. That's different than normal saline. But essentially, the normal saline we get, you know, when you get the IV, you get fluids. That's what it is. And it's pretty much an isotonic solution. So we feel pretty good about that. That's going to be safe. But what are alternatives to these injections, right? So someone's saying, hey, I got some nerve type issue. I'm not sure on these injections. I kind of want to like think about it. Well, we can try other conservative things. So we can try splinting, right? Kind of some immobilization sometimes can be helpful to kind of calm down nerve irritation. Because if it's constantly irritated with movement, if we calm down and don't move for a little bit, sometimes that can be helpful. There's a time and place for that. I'm not immobilizing people for a very, very long time, but there's a time and place for that. Also, sometimes it may be a fact of we can try tendon and nerve gliding where we kind of these exercises in PT very seen it where people are doing weird head or leg turns. We're trying to essentially trying to help move that nerve theoretically through um, its normal course to see if we can kind of help it, you know, glide a little smoother. We can also do other physical modalities in terms of, you know, things with occupational therapy, physical therapy, you know, therapeutic ultrasound, electrostimulation, things like that. We can do a steroid injection. We talked about that. We can do a steroid injection instead of a necessary like bisection. We just kind of go to the area, give a steroid injection to kind of calm down. And then if all, our, all else fails, we can always do a surgical decompression in a lot of different cases. So let's talk about real quick, what are the use cases for this? I would say the most common reason we use this is for median nerve or carpal tunnel. Carpal tunnel syndrome by far and away. The idea behind this injection is that we're trying to peel the nerve off the overlying flexor retinaculum. So if you think about carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, we'll probably talk about in future podcasts specifically you know, what it is, what we're looking for. It essentially is that median nerve that is being irritated. It's getting 
irritated because it's kind of rubbing up on the flexor retinaculum that we're thinking about essentially it gets swollen and enlarged and it gets angry and leads to you know symptoms in the hand but once again it's the same idea it's some sort of nerve entrapment we think that it's it's you know because it's gotten bigger and whatnot it's having an effect around the area so we try to Go in there, inject around it, creating that halo and trying to free it up there can be really beneficial. I've had patients who had a really good success with that using dextrose, and I, that's like my go-to right now. I've really enjoyed doing that. I think I get a lot of benefit from it. Also, we think about the ulnar nerve, right? So around our elbow, typically cubital tunnel. So in the cubital tunnels in the elbow, that's where we see that. We're trying to separate usually the ulnar nerve from the medial epicondyle and adjacent tissues. That's what we're going for. We can also do it for the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve or myalgia parasitic is another name for it. Maybe the saphenous nerve as well. It's a commonly tried after knee replacement. You know, we try to get the medial branch of the saphenous nerve because we have this medial type knee pain after potential knee replacement. So we can try that as well. And like long story, those are a couple of them. Like I said, by far away, I think carpal tunnel is the most common, but it can be done at any nerve you can access safely. So even if you theoretically had like a brachial plexus, you could do that. Obviously, there might be downstream effects because the regular plexus touches a lot, but you can do it anywhere you go as long as you're safe, right? As long as you know you can get to that with your needle and you have good needle visualization, there's no real nerve you can't do this. So you could do it to the sciatic nerve. You could do it to really whatever you want. So the options are endless. It's just a matter of what your comfortability is doing it. In terms of outcomes, what happens here? Well, from a vast reduction, so like a pain scale, the vast is kind of this standardized pain scale. D5W seems to be better when than compared to steroid or saline. So that dextrose solution of 5% seems to do better than saline or steroid, which is pretty cool. If we look at functional outcomes, kind of physical function or performance metrics, it seems to be better with that dextrose or PRP. Um, and then all those dextrose PRP seem to be better than steroids as well. From a electrodiagnostic parameter, meaning, hey, when we do electrodiagnostic testing, that's like how fast the nerve conducts, dextrose and hyaluronidase had better outcomes than saline or dexamethasone. And then also PRP seemed to have some improvement as well. If you look at that nerve cross-sectional area, it's like we talked about when we measure the ultrasound, we kind of get that big circle and measure the cross-sectional area. You seem to have a, the best reduction with the D5W when compared to saline. And then PRP also improved when they compared that to the splinting control, but also that. And then also I just saw another study that showed improved cross-sectional area with PRP compared to prolotherapy. So maybe potentially a little bit better, I'm not sure. But then D5W or PRP are probably should be considered the preferred injectates for carpal tunnel. Um, and that's kind of what it seems like in the, that, the general trend that I've been seeing of note, like I said, we did still see improvements with saline injections. So, you know, we, when we compare dextrose or PRP to saline, the dextrose and PRP were better, but we still got improvements with saline. So we may be getting just some straight benefits from the decompression from a mechanical standpoint, right? We talked about that, getting that injectate surrounding the, the nerve. Maybe that has something to do with in terms of the pain improvement as well. So that is just at a baseline. If we're doing something injecting saline, I feel like we might have some improvement and then what we inject might add on on top of that as well. And so let's look about safety, right? So if we're injecting towards nerves, that can make people kind of give them the heebie-jeebies and whatnot. You know, I'd say the rate of neuropathy or nerve issue after a peripheral nerve block is about three in a hundred. So like I said, 3% chance there. And there's been studies showing, you know, looking at blocks before surgery and about 16% of the time, the needle was actually introduced into the nerves. They were watching it in ultrasound. And then people in the study were like looking at it secondary and they're like, uh, they just went into the nerve, but there's still no post-op complications. And so the idea is like, even if we puncture the nerve, will it necessarily cause damage? I'm not sure. Like I said, 16% of the time they did that and still had no complications. So there might be some wiggle room in terms of getting close to the nerve might not be as dangerous as we think. That being said, 
I'm never risking that. Nobody I know is going to risk that saying like, oh, let's just like go through if I transect the nerve or it's going to be no problem. So no, we're obviously very careful around nerves. But that being said, it is generally safe, it seems like, to get close to that nerve with the needle and even inject stuff around there and it, it, it should be okay. And so overall, my take, I think this is another great option for patients. Um, and it's another one that has a low risk of side effects. You know, in terms of a lot of times we're injecting that D5 dextrose, which is super low. It's kind of like physiologic. I use this quite frequently for injections like carpal tunnel. This is my thing. I think it's worth trying this before surgery as it can be much, much less invasive. Having said, like if there isn't good improvement though, I think, you know, things like carpal tunnel, there's really good, effective and minimally invasive surgeries. And so that's something I, I will do without, you know, if I do a couple of them or I do one or two and I don't have improvement, I say, Hey, it might be time to talk to surgery. But like I said, if you don't want to do a surgery, this is reasonable to try. Will it fix everything? No, it won't, but it's worth a shot. And like I said, some people get good relief from it. Don't need to go to surgery. Then I think that's worth it. I typically use dextrose. And I think it has good results and the literature shows that it's super safe. So like typically that's what I'm going for when I do these injections. And so like I said, I hope this was helpful to understanding, Hey, a different injection option that we have for you as patients or providers something we can do so thank you so much for listening really appreciate it though if you would like comment or subscribe or share this with a friend that would really mean the world to me but thanks for listening get off your phone now get outside and we'll see you next time take care disclaimer this podcast is for entertainment education and informational purposes only the topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.